0: Hey, In Context friends, we need your help. Between now and March 30th, we have a survey that is out and we need you to complete it. We want your feedback. We want to know why you listen to Michael Easley In Context, what you want to hear more of, less of, and anything else you want to tell us to help guide us in the future of Michael Easley In Context. So right now, if you go to michaelincontext.com slash survey, you will be entered to win a package including a $50 Amazon gift card, Ken Boa's handbook to prayer, and Michael's Book on prayer interludes. Again, your feedback is so valuable to us, and we would love it if you took our survey from now until March 30th at michaelincontext.com/survey. Over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books. The Big Book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley, in context
1: welcome to the broadcast today, and it's my delight to have Dr. George Guthrie on the broadcast today to help us with the letter that Paul wrote to Corinth, as we call it second Corinthians. Dr. George Guthrie is professor of New Testament at Regent College. he's lectured across Northern America as well as East Asia, the UK, Germany, South Africa, and Israel. I love to go to Israel, George. We mm-hmm. we go almost every year. He's also taught for 28 years at Union University right here in my backyard in Jackson, Tennessee. And he owns a Ph.D. and M.Div. or I should say they own him, from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, a THM from Trinity. He's also a recognized authority on the book of Hebrews. His doctoral research was the structure of Hebrews. Maybe we should get you back when we come to the book of Hebrews and you can tell us, did Paul write it or not? He's published commentaries on Hebrews, James, and 2 Corinthians, along with many articles and chapters for other books as well. As a consultant on the ESV, the CSV, the NLT, and the HCSB, which is now just the CSB. Can't keep up with them all, George. (laughs) Hey, I'll stop with that. Thanks for joining the broadcast. And um, where are you living now, technically? Are you living near Regent?
2: I live uh, within walking distance of Regent. We, uh, Pat, my wife, and I live on the campus of the University of British Columbia, which Regent from the beginning was located there on the university campus out of the conviction that they wanted to interact you know, with people for the sake of the gospel. So we live within walking distance of the school and it's a beautiful place to live and a wonderful place to fly fish as well. So
1: nice. You're a fly fisherman. Okay. I am. I am. That's a, if you've read River Runs Through It or seen the movie, you gotta be a fly fisherman or you're not a real fisherman, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Well, let's jump into Corinthians. And before we look at some of the Questions and key passages. Give us your sense of Pauline literature and First and Corinthians and the third and the fourth Corinthians. More than sure. likely, and give us a little thumbnail of how you look at Paul's writing to the Corinthian believers.
2: Right, Second Corinthians is one of Paul's thirteen books in the New Testament. So that tells you my perspective on Hebrews. Um, there you as go. Well. <laughs> it's the fourth of four letters that we know of that Paul sent to the church in Corinth in the middle part of the first century. We only have two of those letters. In 1 Corinthians 5-9, he mentions a previous letter that he's responding to in 1 Corinthians, and then in 2 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4, he mentions a sorrowful letter. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things we can talk about is that Paul is prompted by kind of a crisis at the moment in his ministry in Corinth, and uh, there's been a bit of a blow-up and kind of a kerfuffle publicly and that kind of thing. And so Paul goes back to Ephesus after visiting Corinth and just pours out his heart. He says, I wrote you through a veil of tears. So he's heartbroken when he writes that letter, but that letter really puts some things in motion in Corinth. So he writes the previous letter, 1 Corinthians, the sorrowful letter and then this letter that we call Second Corinthians. I think he's writing in about the winter of AD 54-55, kind of late fall or or winter of 54-55. That's a little bit earlier than some people date the book. I think one thing that's significant about that, think about the fact that the church is less than five years old. So these are very, very young believers that he's dealing with, and they seem to be people who have really been kind of they still have absorbed their culture to a point that it's shaping the way they think about life and leadership and and those kind of things. So Paul had first come to Corinth in the spring of AD 50. It's now AD 54-55 and um, he's writing this letter to address kind of some key issues that are going on with the Corinthians at this point.
1: Let's talk about it. I want to get your take on some of these things because in Pauline literature the salutations, you know, we talk a lot about those in seminary and Bible college perhaps. Right. But I'm always struck with the Christology of his salutations. You can't go a verse or a stanza or a phrase in Greek without him talking about the divine pronoun, the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, God Christ, our Lord. Any comment about that? I was struck by that in Ephesians the other day. Out of twenty-three verses, the way we count them, twenty-one have one or more references (laughs) to God, the Father, the Spirit, the divine pronoun.
2: Yeah, I mean, in verse 2, this is part of the salutatio, the uh, salutation, as Paul begins the book. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this kind of combining, of putting the Lord Jesus right there with God the Father— you know, in this address of grace and peace. Grace and peace were ways that you um, addressed fellow Christians. The grace part of that is a riff on the normal greeting in the Greco-Roman world, which was charain. And so in early Christianity, this was transformed into karis, which is grace. Interesting. So grace and then peace would be the normal way Green. of greeting Jewish people. You know, Shalom, shalom. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the backdrop of that, but yes, Arane in Greek. And so these are greetings, and you can greet in the name of a God in a letter in the ancient world. And so the combination of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ would have kind of freaked people out, you know, who were probably, especially from a Jewish background, because of the combination there. So we have a very high Christology integrated Right from the beginning of the book, mm-hmm. as you
1: point out, mm-hmm. I often uh, sign letters Second Corinthians one verses three to seven for people right. that are going through hardship. And the structure in that language is—I mean, it's a—it's several sermons in just those you know five verses or so. Uh, he comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we might be able to comfort those with any affliction. He goes back and forth, back and forth, comfort and affliction. Some observations. Right. Yeah, I think part of what this is coming out of is Paul's moment.
2: So, um, mm-hmm. this has been a really, really tough time in Paul's life in ministry. He is bruised and broken. I think what we have in 2 Corinthians is our benefiting from uh, this moment. So, right after the passage you mentioned in 1 8 through 11, he says that he has just come through a time when he was completely overwhelmed. Uh, He says, you know, it was beyond our strength. Uh, We had the sentence of death on us, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's gone through such a difficult time, I think, of persecution that he's deeply hurt, and also coming out of the situation, of this conflict with the people in Corinth, which I know we'll talk about here in a minute, but his deep, deep concern about where the Corinthians are, or at least part of the Corinthian church, has made it a very tough time. So Second Corinthians is going to deal a good bit with the idea of suffering, and so what Paul does in 1, 3 through 7 is he gets right to that, and in essence, what he's doing there is he's modeling for the Corinthians. How do you respond to these moments of just deep difficulty in life? Well, you respond by having a Godward posture. You bless God. You thank God You respond by understanding that God is a redeemer of suffering, that he turns it inside out for good. And in fact, Paul says one of the key roles of suffering is that we walk through it and then experience God's comfort or encouragement so that then we turn around and we become agents Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. comfort and help to others who are going through the process of suffering. Just one real quick illustration of that. When I was, I think it was 2006, I saved a lot of money by changing a light bulb 12 feet over my garage and uh, <laughs> <I> <laughs> fell know from the coming. ladder. Yeah, <laughs> fell from the ladder and had internal injuries and oh. ended up in the hospital with a chest tube. And yet, wow. a number of years after that, two years after that, Union experienced an F4 tornado yes. that devastated the campus, caused something like, oh, I can't remember how many millions of dollars damage in 40 seconds, and my role after the fact was to be a liaison in the hospital with kids who had been hurt seriously. We had about nine people in the hospital. Nobody killed, which was a major miracle, but there was one young woman who had suffered a crush injury and had a chest tube, and I was able to sit on the side of her bed and talk her through that. And she was able to ask me, is it going to hurt, you know, when mm-hmm. it's pulled out and that kind of thing. But I was able to comfort her with the comfort of Christ because I had been comforted as God walked with me through that type of situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I spend a good portion of my time talking to people with chronic pain and I've had five back surgeries and, you know, mm-hmm. a doctor tells them something, but they'd rather talk to somebody who's had back surgery or breast cancer or prostate cancer or whatever Doctors cut for a living and they do great work, but somebody who's lived through it. And, um, yeah, and that's the reason I love that passage to encourage people to go back to it again. I don't want to conclude curtly or casually there's purpose in this, but one outcome of these, you know, things we go through is we can help other people when they're, you know, in a dark place and discouraged. Absolutely. In verse 11, you also joining in helping us through your prayers. And Johnny Erickson-Todd is a dear friend, and I've asked Johnny many times, Johnny, how do—I mean, I know the theological answers, right? How does our prayer help somebody else?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the short answer is that prayer is the way that God involves us in what He's doing in the world, or one of the key ways that God involves us in what he is doing in the world. It's a strange thing to us. We're praying to someone who we can't see, but who is the power over the entire universe, the creator of the universe, in touch with every person that we're dealing with. And so what prayer does is it's a partnership, in a sense. We have a partnership with others in ministry and in the church But we also have a partnership with God. We are joining Him in what He's doing in the world by calling out. Of course, we're not informing Him of anything. God already knows the needs better than we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not a logic of we are, you know, talking God into doing something. Prayer is God's way by the Spirit of involving us in moving the world. And I think it's something that, boy, that's an area that I want to, I just need to keep learning about and growing in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's powerful from a New Testament standpoint.
1: Let's move on in chapter one a bit. I'm struck by when Paul talks about himself. And this is one thing in my overview of these Pauline letters has been when he, you know, we're in this self-orientation Western mindset right now. And for Paul in the first century, when he's writing, to talk about yourself was a little unusual, and the way he does it and for which audience always catches my interest, but he talks about our proud confidence in chapter 1, verse 12, a testimony of our conscience and holiness, godly sincerity, not fleshly wisdom, and he goes on this whole list of things. I often wonder, you know, we don't use that terminology when we talk to people.
2: Let me say a word about boasting and uh, commendation, because those are both key themes of the book. In the ancient world, boasting could be very positive or very negative. You even look in the Old Testament, you have very positive forms of boasting. You boast in the Lord. You boast in the Lord's works. What you're doing is you're bragging on God. You're being excited about the things that God is doing in the world. So Paul can use the concept of boasting, to celebrate what God is doing in his life or the lives of others. There's a negative kind of boasting, though, that is really the type that the false teachers in Corinth are using. One of the problems Paul is dealing with is there are false teachers who have infiltrated this church, and they are not good models of Christian leadership. In fact, they're very, very bad models. And one of the things they do, uh, a guy named Bruce Winter is a scholar who suggests that Who Paul is dealing with are actually first century sophists,
1: Hmm.
2: Jewish, but really kind of taken into the Greco-Roman culture and buying into that. A sophist was someone who uh, put emphasis on the way they dressed, the way that they spoke publicly, how much money they were making through their speaking. And, you know, it starts to ring bells with us of types of ministry that we see today. But their form of boasting is directed at themselves, they're bragging about their abilities. They're bragging about the effect that they have had, that kind of thing. In the same way, commendation is a parallel concept in Second Corinthians. Commendation is telling other people why you're great and why you ought to be listened to. But now Paul also, I suggest, uses the concept of commendation in a little bit different way. There were two times when commendation was appropriate in the ancient world. Think of reference letters today. You know, if somebody is writing you a reference letter, they're commending you, and you may even write yourself to someone kind of making the case for why you would be a good employee or something like that. There was that form of commendation in the ancient world as well, where you could commend yourself appropriately when you first met somebody. Or when the relationship was needing to be repaired. Mm. So that's why Paul at points is going to say, you know, do we really need to be doing this? We already have a relationship established. Do I need to come back around? You should be commending me. You know, uh, you're kind of trying to force me to commend myself. So what Paul makes a distinction between is proper boasting over against wrong boasting, proper commendation which is kind of grounded in someone's authentic relationship with God and being called by God to ministry and that kind of thing over against a negative form of commendation which is someone bragging on themselves essentially mm. you kind of have to sort that out in second corinthians
1: yes yes and he does that in first corinthians when he brags you know if I'm going to boast in anything and he he switches the argument there the way you've articulated let's talk briefly about sealed and pledged, because those words only show up a few times in the New Testament in chapter 122, who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And he'll mention that again in five five, if memory serves. Yep.
2: Okay. So the relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit is a new covenant relationship by which we are cleansed and the Spirit Comes into our lives. A seal in the ancient world was a mark of authenticity. It was, you know, someone might have a seal on a ring, or they might have a little thing that they would carry in their pocket that was kind of a roller seal where you, you could put down hot wax and then roll the seal over it and it would make your mark on that. So, us being sealed with the spirit is, in essence, I think, a way of saying, that God has put his mark on us. We are his. And I think that that's kind of the key idea that's going on there.
1: Let's jump ahead to um, the new covenant because you mentioned it a moment ago and chapter three, you, you tell me, but this is where he's starting to expand what this means to them. And again, the back and forth language, the structure of this is just a study in itself. How many yeah. times he's going to talk about their adequacy or inadequacy versus the glory of God. So yeah.
2: Yep, so the backdrop of this is um, beginning in 2.14. You have a big shift in the letter. The first part, there from one twelve, all the way through 2.13. What Paul is doing is he's actually having to defend his ministry. Evidently, the backdrop of what's going on in 2 Corinthians, in part, is that Paul had told the Corinthians that he would come back to Corinth and pass through Corinth on his way to Macedonia. He ends up not doing that. He has a change of plans, and so instead he goes from Ephesus north to Troas and then on up into Macedonia, and that's as he's on that trip is where he writes Second Corinthians. So back when he had gone north but not yet written the book, the Corinthians are really agitated, and these false teachers are publicly, you know, saying Paul is wishy-washy, you can't trust the guy, And so what he does is he goes into an explanation there in chapter 1 that, no, this was me just following where God was leading me in the world. We're not being people who lack integrity. In fact, we're following God with integrity. When you get to chapter 2, verse 14, he uses this word picture of a Roman triumph. that was a celebration parade of a Roman general who had won a great battle. And he, in essence, is saying, look, we have followed Christ through the world. And we are celebrating the gospel. In fact, I think the imagery there is that the gospel is like the incense. When a Roman general was doing this parade, incense would fill the streets because you would have people marching in the parade with these incense burners, wafting up to the gods. And I think Paul's using the image of incense there as an image, a word picture for the gospel. It's Mm. it's wafting out Mm. over the crowds. Some people respond to it beautifully. Other people hate it. They smell it as a kind of a message of death. And so he uses this imagery to get into the great center section of the book, which is his theological treatment of what it means to be a true minister of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So he moves from that imagery and then moves into chapter three, where he begins to talk about the new covenant. And new covenant people, as, as you alluded to, you know, we don't put confidence in ourselves. I love that passage in verses 4 through 6. It's not that we are confident in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our competency is from God. Yes. And that's because New Covenant ministry is a ministry that's driven by the Spirit, and it's not about flash and what you look like as the leader up front. It's about a ministry of the Spirit that then all the people— it's not one person of the shining face— if it's real Christian ministry, everybody's face is going to be shining with the glory of God and the presence of God through that ministry. So that's really what he moves into in three seven and following, and he's playing off of that wonderful passage in Exodus 34 where Moses goes up on the mountain and comes down with his face glowing. In that old covenant context, he has to snuff that out with a veil because it freaks the people out. Mm-hmm. And Paul says, that's not the kind of ministry we have. Uh, we all with unveiled faces are beholden the glory of Lord the Lord. God, not only Lord. we as the lead ministers, but all believers are people who have unveiled faces, who have this face-to-face encounter, this transformative encounter with God by the Spirit, so that uh, we are all manifesting the presence of God in our lives. And that's the real mark of true Christian ministry, is what is the impact that it's having on people? Is it just about them leaving the church and saying, man, that guy or that whoever is awesome, is amazing? Or are they leaving transformed so that they're having an
1: impact in the world for the sake of the gospel? How many believers do you think Understand a modicum of what you just said, George. I'm, <laughs> I'm reading through this passage as you're talking about that the veil, the veil. And I got to confess, I've not put the emphasis on 18, but we all with unveiled face. It's giving me chills thinking about it. I mean, that yeah. means that when we, quote, came down from the mountain, close quote, you know, when we came to Christ, let's just put it that way, we're indwelt by the Spirit, we're sealed, fragizo by His work, uh, we're endorsed, we're identified, we're one of His. And we should have not literally, but some sort of shekinah, some sort of yeah. difference yeah. in yeah. the way we look, the way we act, the way we interact,
2: yes, absolutely right, absolutely right, yeah, and the veil thing there in that passage is really, really interesting. People interpret that in a lot of different ways, but the cool this is a really cool thing in the passage he says as he's kind of walking his way through there, where he's talking about. The glory of the ministry. He says the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because the glory, this translation I'm reading is CSB says, uh, which was set aside. And that's a pretty good translation. You know, translations often have that it was fading away or whatever. But I interpret this as Paul very straightforwardly reading Exodus 34 And what the veil did is it snuffed out the glory on Moses' face. That's really what that word means. Mm -hmm. It never in the ancient world means fade, never does. So what happens is in this first, as he's walking through the passage, the veil is nullifying the glory on Moses' face. It's snuffing it out. And so you have that. But then the cool thing is when he gets down to verses 12, 13, 14 uh, in there, he says at the end of verse 14, that actually what happens is Christ snuffs out the veil that is over people's hearts. So the veil under the old covenant was snuffing out the manifestation of the presence of God on Moses' face. In the new covenant, what happens is that veil kind of shifts his imagery here, that veil that is lying over people's hearts, keeping them from relationship with God, Christ actually snuffs that out, and it's the same word it's the same word. He takes it away. He nullifies the veil between people and God so that they can have this relationship where they have this face-to-face, life-on-life, transformative experience of God that changes them as they see God's glory.
1: We got it moved. There's lots of gold we haven't mined yet. Let's talk about one of my favorite verses for a grammatical illustration, 417 Momentary light affliction yeah. is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And I use that parochially to explain a chiasm. But it's such a beautiful construction.
2: Yeah, it really is. That is so powerful. I actually in my commentary on Second Corinthians in the Baker Exegetical series, I translate that something like an eternal tonnage. Of glory. I like
1: it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah.
2: It's just kind of an amazing, amazing passage. So you come to the end of chapter four, that what he's just been dealing with is what I call treasure in terracotta. You know, uh-huh. that, that the gospel is in these clay jars that were cracked pots, you know. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, and what he's talking about is the vulnerability of human life, you know, that we live in these bodies that are breaking down. I tell my students, I'm 61. And I uh, tell my students that more and more I'm longing for the resurrection body. And I mean it, you know.
1: <laughs> I understand. I <laughs> kind of ache when I get out
2: of bed in yep. the morning, you know, that kind of thing. But Paul's grappling with this. This is part of him talking about his suffering. And then in verses 16 and following, you know, he says, even though the outer person is being destroyed, day day the inner person is being renewed day, uh, by day. day by day. And so he kind of transitions to talk about the beautiful productivity of suffering in terms of kingdom economy, if we can say it that way, that what suffering actually does is it is building up this tonnage of glory because we're living a life that's focused on the value of what is at present unseen. And he's going to move from this discussion of temporary over against eternal. You know, what we're facing now, the suffering we're facing now is temporary. And really what we should be living life in light of is eternity. I love the quote by Martin Luther, who said, I have two days on my calendar, today and that day. Mm-hmm. We live in light of eternity. And then he's going to transition to chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, where he talks about the resurrection.
1: Well, that's exactly what I was going to move to. So now we're yeah. coming off this beautiful picture of this momentary lot of affliction. And then unlike any other New Testament author, the metaphors he gives us of absent, present, the tent, the earthly, you know, the mortality, the sting, asleep, awake, depart, arrive. And so now we're introduced to this temporal, be eternal, incredible chapter. And I, again, I often wonder what the ancients, when they heard this, because I was just talking with my daughter earlier today about uh, her in-laws versus Cindy and me and how we talk about getting older and facing death. And, yeah. you know, different age groups talk about this stuff differently. And Cindy and I are very open about it because we've, number one, been in ministry and we've buried a lot of friends. Uh, sure. Number two, it, you know, it, it's just part of life is that you're going to get older and have cancer. And I have this little adage I do with a sort of make a hook move with my fist to go, here's another cheery Michael Easley sermon. You know, <laughs> you're going to die, you know. <laughs> but right. but I, I wonder how the ancients who were probably living to their 40s. In yeah. this audience, maybe 50, if they were really old? Probably the average
2: age life expectancy was late 40s for the vast majority on average, yeah. Yeah, and so this is actually a really debated passage in scholarship. There are some people who read this as Paul kind of moving from what we have in 1 Corinthians 15, which of course is the great chapter on the resurrection and the resurrection body and all that kind of stuff, has Paul kind of lapsed to a platonic idea, you know, where he's just wanting to escape the body, you know, that kind of thing? I don't think so. I think what he's doing here uh, and using this imagery of the tent, you know, the tent is something that is temporary. You don't, you don't leave it up. It's something that is kind of transitory, that kind of thing. But using the image of a tent and a house and these kind of word pictures, he's actually talking about the temporal nature of the current bodies we have. That we are longing for the resurrection body that we will have at the end of the age as God creates the new heavens and the new earth. We'll have bodies that will be fit for that. You know, I was telling a class this past week that, uh, man, there are all kinds of cool things to look forward to. And we were talking about the resurrection body. And I said, you know, I don't know what the new creation will be like, but it will be better. It's more than the experience that we have here. The beauty of the world that we know now will be more beautiful, you know, that we'll be able to live in that because of these immortal bodies and that kind of thing. But I think what he's doing is he's anticipating the resurrection body, but he's using language here that also includes the fact that when we, you know, to be absent from the body to die now is to be present with the Lord. So you have what we could call life after death when we die and we go to be with the Lord. And then we have what N.T. Wright, for instance, calls life after life after death which is the resurrection life, the resurrection body. Mm. And uh, it is the great Christian hope. Uh, We're not going to just be sitting around on a cloud as Casper the Ghost, you know, playing harps and that kind of thing. We will have a greater existence, a more profound existence than we have now.
1: George, let's move ahead in the book a little bit. You've said Paul is addressing a false teaching, false teachings that are going on. Chapter 11 is a haymaker chapter to me. So walk us through some of the things he's addressing, and then I want to ask you some questions about his litany of all the experiences he went through.
2: Yeah. So when you get to chapter 10, I mean, one of the things that you need to realize about St. Corinthians uh, that makes it challenging for most of us to read is that you have these shifts in the book. So in chapter 7, Paul can be very glowing about how the Corinthians have responded. And then you get to chapter 10, verse 1, and all of a sudden you have this big shift in tone, and he becomes very negative. He becomes sarcastic even uh, as he moves from that part of the book. There are two explanations of this. One is that Paul is dealing with a broad group of Corinthians. If you go back to the first of the book, He's not just dealing with one church group in Corinth. He's dealing with the brothers and sisters throughout Achaia, throughout Mm -hmm, the province. mm -hmm. So I think it's a mixed bag. I think you have house churches that are throughout the region. The majority of them have responded very positively to Paul's ministry. And, you know, they're not the problem. But then you have these other pockets where they are buying into this ministry of these false teachers. And that's who Paul is really addressing. So, You have this kind of shift that gives evidence of the fact that Paul's dealing with various groups through this book. The other thing is we need to understand that these false teachers are really kind of embodying what would have sounded great on the streets of Corinth. The type of leadership that they're selling is a Roman type of leadership. It's all about attaining glory and honor. It's about making money. It's about not doing manual labor. So think about the fact that Paul says, no, I don't want support. I'm going to keep, you know, Mm -hmm. doing tents and let the Macedonians help support me and that kind of thing. It's about skill in public speaking, all of these different things. And by contrast, Paul is all about humility, the role of a servant, rejection of patronage and financial gain. Because in that culture, if Paul had allowed one of the leaders in Corinth, one of these cultural leaders, you know, a rich person, to support his ministry in Corinth, then from a cultural standpoint, he would have been obligated to do what that person told him to do. And so what Paul does is he says, no, I'm not going to be paid by somebody else. So he refuses that. And then the final thing that he does is he refuses to go toe-to-toe with these false teachers and use his ability at public speaking to kind of address and, you know, go toe-to-toe with them. Mm. So, what happens in chapter 11 is he now is taking the gloves off. I mean, he's coming at them and he's saying, look, these false teachers, they have a different Jesus, they have a different gospel that I'm preaching, and a different spirit. Mm. These are people who are using the language of the faith, but they are not Christians. In fact, they are servants of Satan. Mm. The Corinthians have been pushing him and saying, come on, you know, go toe-to-toe with these guys, use your rhetoric, show them that you're great, you can really be a great leader. And throughout the book, Paul has been saying, that's not the way I operate. That's not the way I'm doing it. I don't want your faith to be grounded in the wisdom of the world or my abilities or any of these things. And yet they keep pushing him. And what happens as he kind of deals with these false teachers at the beginning of Levin, then he moves into what we call the fool's speech, And in the fool's speech, Paul says, finally, okay, all right, you want me to boast uh, in my own abilities? You want me to brag about myself? You want me to use rhetoric to really kind of build myself up? Okay, let me tell you about myself. And he starts out by using kind of identity markers that they would have thought, okay, here we go. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So all those are positive things. And then he shifts gears and he says, you know, this is talking like a madman, but I've had more labors than them. I've been in prison more than them. I've been beaten up more than them. And he goes into this long list of all these really, really hard things about ministry, and he shifts on them. He kind of turns it inside out. He says, you want to brag? Okay, here's what I'm going to brag about. All of my suffering, all of the price that I've paid in doing ministry. And that's really where his list, these hardship lists that you have in the book— come from. As Paul is saying, look, this is authentic ministry. We follow Christ, the suffering one through the world. And when the gospel comes into contact with the culture, at times what's going to result is pain and suffering. And it's not an inauthenticator. It's actually an authentic mark of real ministry.
1: Mm. The list always catches me because, you know, you and I have been around people in ministry, whether they're missionaries or pastors or folks on staff and we all have trouble. We all have, you know, complaining people and we have this or that or the other. And I read that list and I just want to, you know, go put dust on my head and sit, you know, in in the (laughs) dirt and go, I've had nothing bad in my life. I mean, first of all, as you've given us some great insight on how he's using his boasting in a proper way, let's say, but then he goes on this list of, as you articulated, what I've been through, more imprisonments, beaten times without number, in danger of death, five times I received From the Jews, 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. And then it almost sounds like a cadence, like a song. Frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen. On and on it goes. But then what catches me is in verse 28, apart from, and the NASB inserts such to emphasize external things, apart from this stuff that you can point at. There's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches that dismantles our whining, George.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's like, oh,
1: what you, you got a hang now, you <laughs> got back surgery, Michael. Buck up, buddy. This is Christ Church we're talking about, and that's what puts me on my heels. And then, of course, he moves and says, "If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about my weakness." So before we get to that one, just any additional thoughts about this yeah. litany?
2: Yeah, no, I understand exactly what you're talking about. You know, you have this type of list from Paul, and then I get really kind of depressed and discouraged <laughs> if I'm yeah. sharing it with somebody and then they're ugly to me, you know, right, I and mean, they, right. they may, you know, put me off or, or whatever. But two things that I think that we need to keep in mind. God has called us at different times, different places in the world. And we are called to where we are in the culture where we are, In our culture is still, you know, still reaping fruit in some ways of a very long Judeo-Christian history, you know, freedom, all these different kinds of things. Now, you know, we are obviously in very interesting days in Western culture. So, you know, we want to be realistic about that, that our freedoms may not last forever. We don't know where we are. But, but the reality is we have the freedom that we have and we're in the context that we have in the providence of God, and we can rest in that. I was ministering in China a number of years ago and was with a lot of brothers and sisters from the western part of China where they saw, you know, lots of miracles take place, but they also faced very, very harsh persecution. Um, mm. It's been humbling to me to minister in China and in Israel especially, to be with the church in those two places and to see the persecution that's taking place. And I was talking to an older pastor in China and was talking about this and said, man, you guys, you go through so much. I've never been in prison, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he said, you know, he said, you have your own forms of pressure. Yes. In your culture, you have the pressure of consumerism. Yes. You have the pressure of kind of being assimilated to the broader philosophies of the world. He didn't say it like that. But, but, you know, he was saying you have different kinds of pressures on you. So I think that you know, we need to keep in mind that we don't need to lament the fact that people aren't beating us up on the street. I mean, we need to use the freedom that we have, though, to share the gospel openly, and uh, we can talk about that another time. But then the other thing is, you know, the sufferings that we do face are real, and, you know, there are people listening to this broadcast who have gone through deep, deep debilitating, you know, depression, who have gone through unbelievable suffering with a spouse dying of cancer. And I do think even though 2 Corinthians is dealing a lot with the aspects of suffering related to persecution, I think it is applicable in principle to those very deep, dark times that we face in life. And it's encouraging that we can face the encouragement and the comfort of God in the midst of that suffering, and God redeems it and mm-hmm. and turns it inside out for the sake of the gospel. For those of us in ministry, where this culminates is the thorn-in-the-flesh passage.
1: Which is where uh, I'm where, going. Let me read that, chapter 12, verse yeah, 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, quote, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Close quote. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And that takes us back to yeah. the prior chapter, verse 30. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses.
2: Yeah, and that last phrase you could almost translate as so that the power of Christ would tabernacle on me. Yes, It's a related kind of a family word there. But my grace is enough. It's enough. That's what the word sufficient means. I think the thorn that Paul was experiencing, again, there's debate about this. There are kind of three main views. But I think the thorn Paul was experiencing was persecution. As he goes on down and describes in verse 10, in the summary verse, you know, I'll take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. So I think that summary statement kind of indicates for us that the thorn in the flesh was his experience of these. He just was tired of getting beaten up, you know. Uh, He was tired of the real suffering that he had been facing, but God said to him, this is the way my power is perfected because what God does is He uses our weakness, our vulnerability, our limitations to advance the kingdom, because the emphasis is obviously not on us. Now, we have a conflictual relationship with this concept in our culture, you know, in American culture, North American culture, because we think power is good. We think having, you know, these phenomenal abilities, all of this kind of thing, that these are good things, and you know in submission to Christ and under the control of the spirit yes uh these kind of things can be very good but at the heart of it has got to be this realization of vulnerability and limitation and that ministry has to be grounded in the sufficiency of God not the sufficiency of us
1: mm. help us understand a little bit about this because you know we all have challenges in our lives but I wrestle with this in my life and in encouraging other people about, you know, how is your power, Lord, perfected in my weakness?
2: Yeah, well, let me tell you what I don't think that means. I don't think that means. That's you a
1: good be, professor dodge. <laughs> isn't,
2: that a, isn't that a good professor dodge? <laughs> Lots of experience yeah. of dodging through the years. <laughs> you say that's a very interesting. That's an interesting
1: question. question. That's really a good no. question. Really, no. I have no, no. idea. <laughs> Here's what it doesn't mean. It
2: doesn't mean we can be lazy. We don't need to work at things. It doesn't mean that we should celebrate our stupidity or whatever, you know. That's not what it means. Uh, But again, we need to read it in context. I know you place a big emphasis on that in your teaching ministry, and I appreciate that so much. We need to take it in context that what Paul is speaking of here is the form of weakness that is basically the vulnerability of being human in a world which is going to fight back against the gospel, is going to push back. I think if we are carrying the gospel forth into the culture, there are going to be different ways that that is going to be a struggle, and we're going to feel our limitations in it. It may not be persecution per se, but let me give you an illustration of that. One of the things that's really been surprising to my wife and myself as we've come to Vancouver. We were expecting, you know, a wall of secularism here, and it's here. You know, this is West Coast, uh, very much so. But the thing that has surprised us is you have loads of immigrants here, and even with people who are Canadians, a lot of times they're so post-Christian, they don't know to be offended by the gospel. And so we have friends who are Iranians, we have friends who are Chinese, we have friends who are Canadians, you know, Saudi Arabian, I mean, you know, various people who are amazingly open to relationship with us, and we can be completely open about who we are and about the gospel. Where I feel my vulnerability and weakness in those relationships is the realization that there's no way that I can transform this person's life. I can't. Interesting. I can't do it. Only the gospel by the power of the Spirit. So, what it does is it puts on my wife and myself to cry out to God in prayer for them, for their salvation, because I am absolutely weak. I have no ability to bring this about.
1: So, if I Uh, can interrupt you. So, then what he's saying here, my grace is sufficient. It's enough. And that's a really important word in the New Testament enough. It's enough power is perfected in weakness. So even though you're weak, my grace will sustain you. So he's going to boast about being weak.
2: Yeah. And not only will my grace sustain you, but my grace will actually work through you in your vulnerability and weakness in ministering to other people
1: whether that subductive clause is explanational or purpose or whatever, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So in my weakness, in my inability, and I don't have the communication skills, I don't have the relational capital to deal with a person from another country, whatever it might be, somehow Christ, by his grace, is going to work through me. Yeah, that's absolutely what he's saying. And then he continues, and this is the part that I I scratch my head at: when I'm weak— then I'm strong. Yeah. I'm only strong in so far as I can say, I can't do anything in the flesh. You, many, many years ago, a navigator friend of mine, he said, Michael, you're a disciplined guy, but you can't make your flesh any better. <laughs> and I yeah. never forgot that. I mean, it's like, wow, that's a epiphany there. you No matter how yeah. godly or disciplined or whatever we want to you know, label ourselves, maturing Christians, the flesh is not going to get better.
2: Yeah. And I think that we ought to be disciplined people. I mean, there there are virtues uh, where I believe in working out. I believe in working out more than I work out. I need to work out more. (laughs) Uh, I, you know, I I have time with the Lord on a daily basis. You know, I really try to work hard at studying Scripture and, and those kind of things. So we need to work hard at all those things. But at the end of the day, we're limited we are weak in the face of the dynamics of this universe. And realizing that and embracing that and embracing our limitations, I think, is just a foundation stone of true life and ministry. What it does is is it gives us space to live in the grace of God and find that the power of God is in that space of grace.
1: I had written in the margin of my Bible studying this passage a long time ago. How can I be content in my weakness? How, when I'm weak, am I strong? None of this apart from you, your work. Otherwise, I'm hopeless and at an end. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. And that's hard for us as Westerners because we're if-then people. You know, if you're disciplined, if you do this, if you save your money, if you eat healthy, if you exercise, then these things won't happen. And there are no guarantees. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's why we're just getting started, but it's time to stop. Uh, (laughs) Let's look at the last chapter where, again, he goes back to this weak weakness, power, weak power, test exam. I mean, he continues the theme until he concludes the letter.
2: Yeah. So what happens is Paul comes around in 12, 14 and down through 21 to, again, express his concern for those Corinthians who have not responded well. And he kind of gives them a warning and says, look, guys, I'm showing up, and you're going to have to deal with me soon because I'm going to be coming. In fact, the whole book in some way is in anticipation of Paul's coming. The whole, we talked about the first six chapters mainly, seven chapters, where he's saying, okay, get prepared by getting your head straight about what real Christian ministry is about. Chapters 8 and 9, get prepared by preparing the offering that you agreed to. 10 through 13, get prepared by dealing with these false teachers. So he gets to the end of chapter 12, and he's talking about the fact that, you know, there's still some of them who are not where they need to be. And then he turns to chapter 13, and he says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's time to get real about this. Examine yourselves, because when I show up, God's power is going to be manifested. So he does bring the end of the letter down to this kind of powerful rhetorical challenge to say, here's the long and the short of it. You need to respond for your own spiritual sake. You need to respond well to the things that I've talked to you about in this letter. And that's not a contradiction in terms. Some ancient rhetoricians suggested that you saved confrontation till the end of a letter or a speech to kind of wrap up on how people now need to respond Uh, before they see you. (laughs) Mm. So that's kind of what Paul's doing here. And he brings it all down, but he's also hopeful. He says, I've written these things while absent. This is verse 10 of chapter 13. So that when I'm there, I may not have to deal with you harshly in keeping with the authority that Lord gave me for building you up and not for tearing you down. So he says, look, the reason why I'm confronting you is because I love you. And I don't want us to have to deal with this on the streets of Corinth. I want us to respond well to the moment so that you can be built up in the faith and be who you need to be as the people of God.
1: Hmm. Dr. George Guthrie, thank you for your time, for your study, for your discipline to help us in the book of Second Corinthians. And we probably are going to have to grab you back to help us with Hebrews.
2: Oh listen I would love to do
1: that. <laughs> okay. I would love I love the book of Hebrews but
2: thanks for having me on Michael. Really appreciate your ministry. Thanks for the dialogue today. It was good.
1: Mutual friend. God bless you.
0: that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.